In the next section, Paul reviews why the gift of tongues was given, and he provides guidelines for how it was to be used in the church when the church was gathered. Uh, so that's pretty much what we're going to be looking at today. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at why prophecy was given and, and guidelines for how it was to be used. Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 again, verses 20 to 28 is where we'll be today. Uh, I'm going to add some more P's to last week's uh, slideshow. Uh, just made sense as I began to look at the text for this week. Uh, we'll have two more today and then probably one for this coming Sunday, this next Sunday. Now we're looking at the purpose of tongues. And we see this in verses 20 to 25. Verse 20 is where we'll pick up. He says this, this is the next thing he says to, to his, his readers. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So as Paul begins to explain really the true purpose of tongues, he appeals to the Corinthians, he's encouraging the Corinthians, he's exhorting the Corinthians, he's even admonishing the Corinthians, like lovingly correcting the Corinthians to actually be mature in their thinking. You know, when somebody has to remind you of something like this, that indicates that you're not being whatever it is they're telling you to be. They have not been mature adult-like in their thinking. They've been very childish. And, and, um, and we know and we've learned through several weeks of studying the text that the behavior of children is often selfish and um, just self-centered and selfish and rebellious. And that's exactly how they've been acting with the spiritual gifts and toward one another. And so he's telling them here, you know what, you, you need to essentially stop being children in your minds. That's how you're acting. You're acting like kids in your minds. You need to be like a baby or an infant or a newborn toward evil, but you need to be mature in your thinking. They weren't doing it, and that's why he says this. It was their loveless immaturity and carnality that caused all of their theological, spiritual, and moral problems, including their misuse and counterfeiting of the spiritual gifts. Now, before they could actually begin to comprehend what the apostle is trying to say here, and really throughout the epistle, they would have to stop being children in their thinking. You know, children have a certain level of learning and ability and skill, and they just there's certain things that they just cannot understand. And so you've got to kind of, as they're growing and getting older and maturing, that's when you can start giving them deeper truths or deeper or broader instructions, but you just can't expect small children to understand certain things. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. These are adults, though, and they've been at church for about 18 months. And, you know, you're not going to be a super, super, you're not R.C. Sproul after, you know, being converted for 18 months, but you're certainly not as you were 18 months earlier. And so he's literally just stop being children in your thinking here. And then he says, uh, something about being infants and evil. When it came to evil, uh, the Corinthians were anything but infants. The idea of being an infant means you're just so young that you're not at all that advanced and knowledgeable of how to sin yet. It's not to say that infants and babies and all that aren't sinful. They're sinful in the womb, but you know, a, a, an infant isn't going to be overtly sinful, as sinful as an adult. They don't understand those things yet. They'll be sinful in their actions without even comprehending what they're doing. You tell them you're a little sinner. They don't even know what that means. 
I used to tell my kids that all the time. That's why they're so damaged. <laughs> now they're not damaged. So if, if, if Paul the apostle tells one of us, you do not be childlike or a child in your thinking, that, that's a hard correction. You're, you're acting childish. And then what he says, you're supposed to be like an infant in evil, not as advanced right? You're, you're, you're not to have progressed as far along. You're not to be like an infant. Nobody would ever expect an infant to be as wicked or sinful as a full-grown adult. How's an infant going to commit adultery? How's an infant going to engage in sexual sin? It's just not even on their radar yet. It's not something they understand. And yet the Corinthians were not at all like infants in evil. They were pros. They were pros at sin. They sinned big. Right? They even took the things of God, like spiritual gifts, and used those for prideful reasons and for sin. So, I mean, this is a catastrophic rebuke to be told this. You know, you ever had someone tell you when you were maybe having a fit or something to grow up? I've been told that. You need to grow up. What's my answer? So do you. You know? That's what Paul is saying here, but he's also saying you need to be like an infant in evil instead of an aged pro. So this is a big, big correction. This is, this is heavy stuff. They were pros at evil. They were pros at sinning. They had virtually all the manifestations of the flesh in their church and basically almost none of the fruit of the Spirit, <laughs> right? They, they, were, they were completely walking in the flesh as a church. When, when they should have had the fruit of the Spirit, love and peace and joy, all those things should have been there. Instead, they had all these expressions of fleshly carnality, even when it came to the things of God. By their selfish, ego-building abuse of the gift of tongues, they were, among other things, even going as far as to, to, to sin greatly by ignoring the rest of the family, the rest of the body of Christ. So, I mean, they just had... We, we, what was it, in chapter 5? I don't remember where it was. I think it was in chapter 5 where we learned that they were giving approval to a guy sleeping with his stepmom. This church was professional at evil, experts at sin and carnality. And we've, we've studied this. They were suing each other in court. Just think back upon what Paul has addressed. But when you, when you read the letter... And, and more so when you study the letter, you, you're just, you sit there marveling that this is written to an actual church and not the local tavern. It's unbelievable. Incredible what's going on here. And I think worst of all, they were just abusing other believers, you know, with the spiritual gifts and these other things. It's just horrible. They were just mistreating their fellow brothers and sisters. MacArthur's commentary is, is pretty insane. Now, he, this commentary on 1 Corinthians was published back in 1984. That's, goodness, almost 20 years before I even was saved. So think back 1984, 1980s. How many of you remember the 80s? Yeah. I always say it's my favorite decade. And then when I see a movie from it, I'm like, this is perverted. I mean, it's like 80. Everyone says the 80s were so much better. Are you kidding me? It was a terrible decade, but MacArthur writes this commentary for 1 Corinthians in 1984, and to me it sounds like he's talking about the current generation. He says this, uh, referring to the Corinthians, they could not be taught because they were not interested in learning. See, that's, there's the, they're acting like children. Children don't necessarily want to learn, especially when it's corrective, but 
They were interested only in using spiritual means and fellow believers in whatever ways that, that could serve their own ends. They were not interested in truth, but in experience, not in right doctrine or right living, but only in good feelings. They were not interested in pleasing the Lord or their fellow Christians, but only themselves. Experience always won over, uh, won over the truth. They always erred on the side of experience rather than over truth. It, um, experience was, and, and emotions, those things always won over reason. Self-will always won out over God's will. If something sounded good, they believed it. If it felt good, they did it. Uh, was that written in 1984 or 2023? That, that is just nail on the head for today, the way people operate today, where everything's purely emotional. If it feels good, do it. And I suspect that's the way it's been since the fall. In fact, I know it is because I've studied the Old Testament. But MacArthur is pinpointing their problem, and it sounds a lot like today. It's horrible. It's a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. To be infants in evil means to be unlike adults who are far more advanced at sinning. As new creations, uh, and that's what they allegedly were, as new creations, the Corinthians should have been more like infants in the ways of sin thanks to the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, thanks to the fact that they'd been born again. Christians, now listen, this is important for us to understand because I wrestle with this at times with my own life. Christians should actually... They should become less sinful over time as the Spirit renews their minds and conforms them to the image of Christ. Romans 12, 2, Romans 8, 29. Did you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, like you're a sinner and you're saved by grace. You're regenerated. You're made new. You have the Holy Spirit. There is a moment of impact and that over time you were growing in grace and growing in the fear of the Lord, growing in the truth and, and I can even look back and, you know, prior to my conversion and just how wicked and sinful I was and where I found value and where I found pleasure and all those things, those things don't appeal to me anymore. Point being that as a Christian, you should become, doesn't mean you'll ever be without sin until you go to be with the Lord. He comes to be with us, but you should be growing to be like Jesus over time, less like your old self and more like a new creation in Christ. If, if somebody claims to be literally following Jesus and they've been born again and they love Jesus and they're identical to what they were before, there's a problem. You're supposed to be a new creation with new desires, a new hatred of sin, a new love for righteousness and these sorts of things. And th this, is, this would be really, really hard to say about this Corinthian church. It's at that point 18 months old. Now, I think it's thoroughly possible for Christians to end certain behaviors when they get saved. You know, they realize things and they put an end to them. And I think it's possible for them to return to those things over time. We all know that to be true. Uh, when I first got saved, uh, I, well, right before I first got saved, I used to curse like a sailor. You know, the, my language was just horrific. I mean, every, there was an F-bomb that finished every sentence. That's what I knew. That's what I understood. And there was a moment where I realized how wrong that was and stopped doing it. And then years and years later, it isn't that I've started using language like that again to that level, but once in a while I find myself saying things, whether I'm driving behind someone who has no right to have a driver's license. <laughs> this guy in front of me is blind, you know, or whatever, or I stub a toe. 
or my stereo equipment, you know, my equipment isn't working properly as I DJ or something, I find myself at least thinking things. I'm really good at using profanity in my mind at times. I don't always verbalize it. Point being that you can have this moment where you realize things and over time you can kind of slide back into things. But I'll tell you what, if I were to slide completely back into everything, that means that I, I'm, I'd be drunk all the time, carousing, probably looking for someone to have an affair with. I mean, there's a definitive difference in my life, but I notice that some things try to come back. Point being, you should be different. You should be different. I think believers over time should become, this is weird, right? We're supposed to be growing up in the Lord, but at the same time we're growing up to mature manhood or womanhood in the Lord, we're becoming an infant to evil. We don't sin like we did. Different desires, different passions. And the biggest thing of all is that we regret sin when we sin. We feel bad over it. Sometimes immediately, sometimes over the course of a day or two, sometimes when somebody tells you, like a Nathan situation where they tell you what you've been doing and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't, I'm so sorry, right? We should be come over time like infants to evil. Not, we shouldn't be pros at evil. We shouldn't be pros at sinning and, 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 and then just not even caring about our behavior or what we do. That's a bad situation. Our minds are being renewed. Our, our hearts are changed. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Let me tell you what should happen here. It's our awareness of sin in us that increases, not our practice of it. You understand the difference? The maturing Christian realizes what he or she is capable of and fights and does warfare against that. It shouldn't be your practice of sin that increases. It should be your awareness of it and your desire to kill it. That's the main thing. Every believer should be like an infant in evil, not a seasoned pro who shows literally no restraint, doesn't care at all. That's what Paul is saying here. It just makes it worse that they're doing this not down at the tavern or some other carnal worldly place, but they're doing all this sin within the church against their brothers and sisters with the very gifts of God. I think that makes it worse. Using the church as a platform to glorify yourself, using the, 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 the gifts that God gives to serve and build up the body for your own reputations. I mean, this is just ugly. It's worse. He's exhorting them. You need to be mature in your thinking. A mature Christian, you need to be an adult in your thinking. An adult Christian, somebody who's mature in their thinking. They've got a biblically centered mind. Rather than just going to town with whatever iniquity or sin or transgression, just sinning mightily, rather than doing that like they did before when they were unregenerate and not saved, what they do now is they're growing and developing in the Word and having a biblical mindset. They learn to take every thought captive and to hold it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. That, brother or sister, is going to be ready and willing and able to apply the apostles' instructions here concerning spiritual gifts, corporate worship, or whatever. Paul's saying you need to be mature in your thinking. If they're mature, they're going to listen. They're going to pay attention. They're going to apply, and they're going to obey. If they're going to continue to act like children, they're going to disregard this epistle. Just like a young, rebellious child disregards his parents' instructions or corrections. 
verses 21 to 22, Paul says, in the law it is written. You know now he's talking about the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law. He says, and keep in mind the subject here, we're talking about the purpose of tongues. He says this, back in the law it is written. And then he says this, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues, here's what Paul says about that though, that. That theology, that biblical uh, statement concerning tongues, he says this in 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. All right, this is really the heart of chapter 14 right here. It's probably the most important truth regarding the spiritual gift of tongues, which we see used and abused today. It was, what is that truth? It was given as a sign. And it was given as a sign to what? Unbelievers. Specifically, too, contextually speaking in Scripture, to unbelieving Jews. So it has a, a universal kind of signage to everyone, but really and specifically, more or less, when someone spoke in tongues, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews. That's it. That's where it ends, really. And the sign was really threefold. It was a, a sign of cursing, a sign of blessing, and a sign of authority. Now let me just unpack the theology of tongues a little bit more for you. During the prophetic ministries of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Moses, believe it or not, Moses was a prophet. In fact, Scripture said of him that a prophet like him would come, speaking of Jesus, so during the, the prophetic ministries of Jeremiah, he's one of the big dog prophets. Isaiah, probably the biggest dog of all. And then Moses, he's certainly like the king of prophecy, comparatively speaking. During the ministries of those prophets, which is a span of about a thousand years, from Moses to Jeremiah, you got about a thousand years, a long, long period of time. During that period of time, through those specific prophets, God warned his people on three separate occasions that disobedience would cause them to be subjected to what? People of strange tongues. And yet, even during the time, if they disobeyed, they would be subjected to these foreign nations that spoke languages they did not understand. Even during that time and after that time of being subjected, and we know they were, even during that time and after that time, they would not repent and change their hearts. They would not Listen, as Paul cites here, or as he cites one of the prophets here, they would not listen to the prophets. They would not repent, even though they were subjected to strange tongues, people of strange tongues. You can research this yourself. Jeremiah 5, 15, Isaiah 28, 9 to 10, and Deuteronomy 28, 49. All three of those sections or passages of Scripture refer to, under Moses, under Jeremiah, under Isaiah, that my people are going to disobey, they'll be subjected to people of strange tongues, and they're not going to do a thing about it. So the sign of judgment, according to those prophecies, and according to what Paul is saying here, it would be the Greek word glossa, tongues, or languages, human languages, intelligible languages, those languages would serve as the sign of judgment against Israel. They would come through the lips of foreigners, and, and that would be people that the Jews just plainly did not understand. They didn't understand those languages. It's almost like what God is saying through Moses, 
Isaiah and Jeremiah is that you will know you're under judgment when foreign nations attack you and you can't understand what they're saying while they're whooping your rear ends. That's the sign of judgment. Now, we know that these prophecies that were given by those three major, major prophets, we know that they all actually came to pass at least on two separate occasions when two foreign superpowers came and beat the snot out of Israel. Which ones? Firstly, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, right? You know your Bible, you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel rebelled and was conquered and deported or removed and exiled by firstly the Assyrians and then secondly by the Babylonians. Those are two people groups, superpowers during that time that spoke different languages than Israel that marched into the land, beat up the people, spoke their foreign languages. The Jews had no idea what was going on. They couldn't understand them and they were subjected to the powers. The Babylonians and the Assyrians both invaded, conquered, and carried away Firstly, the northern tribes, that was by Assyria, and then Judah, which is considered the southern tribes. You can research this yourself in 1 Chronicles 5.26, 2 Kings 24.11-14, 2 Kings 25.1-2, and 25.9-12. Maybe you don't realize this, but your Old Testament's also a history book. It's got plenty of history in it. So... Prophecies given by those three major prophets had to do with your rebellion and people of foreign tongues coming in and conquering you and taking you away. Okay? And, and those prophets were essentially aiming those prophecies at unbelieving Jews, which basically made up most of the nation. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day, or more specifically in Paul's day, they were very, very familiar with those Old Testament prophecies. They were also very familiar with their historical fulfillment. Like, you could have asked any Jew in the first century, and they were very educated in the Word, very educated in their scriptures, very educated on their history. And you could say, well, what do you think Paul is referring to here? And they would say, well, obviously, he's talking about Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah, you know, when, when those, those men prophesied about how we would be conquered by people with foreign tongues, they would know. They would know exactly what's being said here. They would understand the reference. They knew that tongues were a sign of judgment. See, see, the Jewish people don't think of tongues as a sign gift or anything like that or some kind of a spiritual gift or anything. They see it as a judgment because that's exactly what they experienced later on right, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They knew that tongues were a sign of judgment and that the appearance of foreigners with foreign languages and, of course, accompanied with, by violence might mean that they are either entering or under divine judgment. That's the way the Jewish mind would work. If Paul is talking primarily to Gentiles here, but if there had been any Jewish people in the audience, they would have went, I know exactly what he's talking about. My ancestors had to deal with that. And this is how, in Paul's day, Jewish messianic Christians, Jewish believers, and non-unbelieving you know, Jewish people, and uh, this is how they would have interpreted the Roman occupation of their day. The Romans spoke Latin, spoke Greek, spoke languages that would have been unfamiliar to Israel. And so to have a foreign superpower, and believe me, the Roman Empire was far greater than the Assyrians or Babylonians, to have them as oppressors 
over the Jews during the days of Jesus and Paul. This is, this is we, we know exactly what you're talking about. In fact, we're experiencing this right now is what they would have been thinking and saying. Maybe even the Gentiles would have comprehended this and saw themselves as the victors over the Jews. Right? Gentiles being Greek believers. They saw their own occupation at that moment as, uh, you know, totally as, I, we know exactly what you're talking about, that we would be subjected to those who speak foreign tongues. And this is one of the reasons why godly people like Simeon and a gal named Anna, they prayed night and day for the consolation of Israel. You can read about that in Luke 2, 25 and chapter 2, verses 36 to 38. In other words, there were people who understood how they would be judged, how they would be subjected to foreign nations with foreign tongues in Paul's day and during the days of Jesus, even when Jesus was only eight days old, brought into the temple to be circumcised, to go through that ritual, there were people there that were just waiting to be delivered from those foreign superpowers with foreign tongues. Everybody understood what this meant when this was written. When the apostles spoke at Pentecost and were heard in their own language, uh, when people heard the apostles speaking in their own languages, this was a supernatural um, type of tongues that was happening. Uh, they, they, there, were, there were Jews from all over the world at that time who did not speak the language of the apostles. They spoke the languages of, the, of their own territories and all that. And they show up at Pentecost not to worship Jesus, but to worship God because that's a Pentecostal, it's a Pentecost feast for them and all that. And they're hearing they're hearing the gospel being proclaimed in their own languages. They're literally hearing foreign languages, and they're connecting the dots now to the things that were said by Moses and others. They're being subjected to languages, but now they have the supernatural ability to comprehend them. And I think that when those Jews heard strange tongues being said, being spoken by the apostles, and then they were given the supernatural ability to comprehend and understand I think those Jews that were present on Pentecost, they would have known because of that whole situation with the foreign tongues that judgment was imminent. That's what it would have reminded them of days of old. And God's, God's judgment had fallen on rebellious Israel and then on rebellious Judah, right? Thinking of the Assyrians, thinking of the Babylonians. How much more would it fall on those of his people who had crucified and killed the Son of God? So just imagine the setting on Pentecost where you've got Jews from all over the world there to worship God. And then you've got these men who are supernaturally speaking in foreign tongues. Some people are given the ability to understand what they're saying. Not everyone, but some are given the opportunity. And the first thing that clicks in their mind is they're reminded of their history. When they were judged as God said they would be. As Moses said, it's coming. As Isaiah said, it's coming. And it did come through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians. And now we're seeing another expression of it on Pentecost. And they're under a Roman occupation. See, what we don't, under, what we don't really study or understand is really the context of what happens at these events. And Pentecost was so significant for so many reasons, not just that it marks the day in which the church was literally born when the Spirit came down, but... All the symbolism and stuff and the reminders of judgment and being conquered, all these things are packed into that event. Depending on who you were when you were present there, it had specific significance for you. But mostly we remember it for the day that the church was born. 
So all this stuff is swirling around in their minds at Pentecost. And now they're being reminded of the judgments that came. And now they're seeing the potential for more judgment because there's now the presence of more languages that they don't understand, and some do and some don't. And this is precisely now, think about this, this is precisely what Peter preaches immediately following that supernatural outbreak of tongues, that supernatural outbreak of glossa, right? After he ties the phenomenon that is happening with the languages being spoken supernaturally at Pentecost, after he, he ties this phenomenon, here's what's happening. People were saying, I think these guys are drunk because they're speaking in strange tongues. He explains, firstly, what's happening here, and he explains it from Joel, a prophet. Joel prophesied about an outbreak like this, something that would happen. It's a messianic prophecy. So after Peter, Peter is one of the ones that's speaking in tongues, the people here, their minds are blown. They think the judgment of God is coming. He ties it to Joel and says, this is not, they're not drunk. They haven't been drinking. This is prophecy being fulfilled in your very presence, Acts 2, 17 to 21. So with foreign tongues still ringing in their ears, with, with Peter tying it to Joel and tying it to their history, with thoughts of divine judgment swirling in their hearts and minds, because that's what's happening. Oh, no, here's tongues again. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know and witnessed, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Listen to what he says here. Remember, they're thinking, oh no, judgment's coming. Here's why, because the next thing he says is, that Jesus that you're all familiar with, you crucified and killed him. You're right, judgment is coming. This is the connection. This is, what, this is what Peter is teaching them on that day. This is exactly why 3,000 of them were cut to the heart and repented and believed in Christ and were baptized. It's the presence of tongues as a sign of judgment against them at that very moment that is the real kicker here that points them back to their history and how they got absolutely obliterated by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And now it's something like that is happening again. And Peter says, here's why. You killed your Messiah. Mm. You ever wondered why so many repented and got saved? That's why. Tongues was a major component in, in their conversion because it was a sign of judgment coming against them. God displayed that sign on Pentecost, not just to prove that, that the Spirit had come and not just to prove that the church would be born on that day or any of that. That's all important. It's all significant, but also as a judgment. The Pentecost tongues was a sign of judgment against the unbelieving Jews who rejected and murdered Jesus Christ. And their day in court had finally come. Pentecost was the day where the verdict was handed down. Yes, you're right to be thinking about judgment right now. The tongues remind you of judgment. You're right to think that way. And you are guilty because you slayed the Son of God. Their day in court had come. It's hard to believe that Pentecost is, is, is the judgment day in a sense. 
It's the day of court, not just the birth of the church. And then roughly, plus or minus 40 years later, what happens? Israel, as a nation, as an unbelieving apostate nation, she receives her punishment, the destruction of that city and the destruction of the temple. The jury came in on Pentecost. The judgment was handed down roughly 40 years later when that entire place, the very place in which Peter preaches that message is turned to rubble and it has not been rebuilt. And who was it that came in, marched into Jerusalem and wrecked and destroyed and sacked the temple and sacked the city? Who was it that did it? General Titus, a foreign tongue-speaking Greek or uh, Roman commander. They were reconquered, essentially, 70 A.D. by foreign tongue-speaking people. See, ultimately, what Moses was pointing at, what uh, Jeremiah was pointing at, what Isaiah were pointing at, certainly had to do with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, certainly, I think, had to do with Pentecost, where judgment would be pronounced again, and absolutely had to do with 70 A.D., when foreign tongue-speaking people would come and wreck them. General Titus and his legionnaires just absolutely obliterated the city, wrecked the temple, destroyed it. Jesus said it would happen. He said, you know, this place is gorgeous. I get it, but not, there's not going to be one stone here that's left unturned. You know, the whole temple was coated in gold and emeralds and rubies and diamonds and all sorts of things, and all of that was just peeled off the walls and sucked off the bricks by the Romans, taken off the bricks. After Pentecost, during the initial expansion of the church, Tongues continue to serve as a sign of judgment to unbelieving Jews. It was used against the circumcision group who did not believe Gentiles could be saved apart from obedience to the Mosaic law. Acts 10, 45 to 46, that whole exchange with Cornelius. Remember Peter came with some of those, you know, they, allegedly they were Christians, but they were more Jewish than Christian, and they were foisting circumcision on everyone, and they didn't believe that any of us non-Jewish people could ever be saved without going through all that. And there was Gentiles who were saved while Peter was preaching yet again in Cornelius' house, and there wasn't a single one of them that was circumcised, and they began to speak in tongues, and those tongues served as a sign of judgment against those Jews in there that never thought that Gentiles could ever be saved was also used against stubborn Jews in Ephesus who spoke evil of the way, Acts 19, 6 to 9. When you read that text, you'll notice right before when these Jews are stirring up trouble in Ephesus and, and saying that Christians are evil and the way of Jesus is evil, right before that there's an outbreak of tongues among some that Paul was ministering to. They see all of this and they realize what's happening with these tongue speakers, but they harden their hearts and call the way evil. According to the Old Testament and the New Testament, a sign of judgment against unbelieving Jews, that is the purpose of tongues. That's it. They were given as a sign to unbelievers, especially unbelieving Jews. Now, this is not to say that tongues had no other purpose, because sometimes something might have been given by God that might have multiple purposes. 
We know that uh, prior to tongues ceasing, because I think the majority of us understand that now, we believe they're gone, uh, there was a point where they could be used for the building up of the body, but never apart from interpretation. They had to be interpreted. 1 Corinthians 14.5, just slide back to verse 5. It could be, it could very well be that the carnal Corinthians, the one in, to whom Paul writes to here, they were maybe possibly motivated because we know that they just had this crazy obsession with the gift of tongues. It could be that part of the motivation for that might have been some kind of retribution against any of the persecutory Jews in their community. In the first century, Christians and Jews did not get along at all. The Jews hate, I mean, they hated Jesus. They killed him. They hated his people. And so wherever there was a church planted, you always had Jewish opposition. And it could be that some of the Corinthians may have understood the history of tongues and the implications of it toward Jewish people, and maybe they wanted the gift real bad just so they could speak in tongues and maybe irritate or make Jewish people nervous because whenever there was an outbreak of the tongues or whatever like that, they thought, oh no, here comes judgment again. Who knows what's motivating the Corinthians? We can know without a doubt that they weren't motivated by godly things. I mean, could you imagine if you were a Jewish person and you walk into a Christian church because Fred over here, your Jewish Christian buddy invites you to church and the whole church is speaking in tongues? If I'm a Jewish person sitting in there, I'm going, oh no, judgment's coming again just like it did that Moses said it would and Jeremiah said it would and Isaiah said it would. And I heard something about that Pentecost thing. What the heck was going on there? Why are all these people speaking in these languages? I know from my scriptures that that's never a good thing. So who knows? Maybe the Corinthians kind of understood that. I doubt it because they don't seem to understand much. Maybe they thought that speaking in tongues would scare away their Jewish adversaries. You know, this guy was arguing with me in the store and I went, Shandalala, come to Baran, and he just ran which is not a tongue, by the way. Notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 22. He says this, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So according to the text, tongues are or were a sign for unbelievers, especially unbelieving Jews, while prophecy is the opposite. It's actually a sign for believers. Remember, the Corinthians placed a super high premium on tongues. They thought that was the thing that they should be doing in the congregation while diminishing prophecy. And Paul says here, one is for unbelievers. This is a church of believers, so I don't see how tongues are helpful to you. But prophecy, on the other hand, it, it is a sign that was given by God or from God to you for you. It's helpful to you and to your church. That's what he's saying here. With that being said, which spiritual gift would be better suited for building up the church? One's for unbelievers, one's for believers. So which one would be better for the church? Tongues or prophecy? Doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. In fact, I think Paul is now preaching or writing at a level that maybe the Corinthians can just barely scratch the surface on. Okay, I think I understand what he's saying. Verse 23, if therefore, listen to this, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not think that you are out of your minds? <laughs> Paul, Paul is describing now, and this is what this church wanted, everyone should be speaking in tongues. Hey, it's like Oprah, tongues are for you, tongues are for you, tongues are for you, right? Except she's giving away cars. Wish I was there that day. Paul's describing the effect of congregational tongues upon outsiders and unbelievers. 
If a whole church was gathered for worship and, and speaking in tongues and, and Gentile unbelievers showed up, what would they think? They would think the church has lost its mind. These people are nuts. What on earth are they doing? Shanda kanda banda flanda, dunda danda dunda danda, yabba dabba do over here. I mean, and let's just say they were real. They were actual real intelligible languages. We know back then there was the counterfeit, but let's just say that this guy over here speaking French doesn't know a lick of it. This guy speaking German, it would have been more like Latin or Greek or whatever. But let's just say, for instance, that somebody comes through this door. Somebody unlock it. Let's see if somebody comes in. And we'll just pretend, and we'll find out what they think after the service. We'll, we'll give them a, a form to fill out. You know what they're going to say? That place is nuts. That's how Paul is describing a Gentile unbeliever outsider would respond if he came into a Christian church where everyone was speaking in tongues. Even if, it was a, even if they were actually speaking in intelligible languages, they would still think that that church is nuts. It'd be really weird. I don't know how many languages there are in the world, but let's just imagine Bruce is speaking one and Lauren's speaking one and Bill's speaking one. Everyone's blasting off at the same time. What is that going to be like? I'm not even an outsider, and I would try to stop that immediately. He, he, he's saying here that they're going to say you're out of your minds. They would think the church is crazy, and I think for at least three reasons. First, Gentile unbelievers, they, they're not educated in Scripture. They do not possess a biblical theology of tongues. Uh, they don't have any understanding of these things. And because of this, there'd be no way for them to connect what they're experiencing to the Word. They wouldn't know that it has some kind of Old Testament significance, that it was a sign of judgment or any of that, or even maybe a sign to build up. They, they don't understand these things. Sometimes I think we engage people outside of the church and we share truths with them and all that, and they just, it's like casting pearls before swine. They don't understand what you're saying. People preach to me all the time before I was a believer, and I was like, huh? What? The dude was swallowed by a whale? I mean, seriously? So... If a Gentile walked in and they have no biblical reference points, right? They, they don't understand what this manifestation is. They don't understand what's happening or if it's fake or if it's real or whatever. They have no concept because they have no Bible. They would be forced to draw their own conclusions. And they would, Paul says, determine that Christians are just plain nuts. And guess what? This is exactly how Gentile unbelievers, regular old folks, respond to congregational tongues today. They walk, out, they walk into a service not knowing anything about anything and they walk in and they go into some Pentecostal church and everyone's doing this and they walk out going, those people are crazy. I've had people tell me this that I worked with through the years. Well, I went over to the, back, back then it was Calvary Temple. And I'll tell you what, everyone in there was speaking, it was just creepy, man. So I walked out of there, I said, these people are just crazy. They're just nuts. They're bat duty crazy. They don't even know what's going on. I don't know what was going on. It was weird. This is what they say today. Paul says that's what they'll say. He's saying that in the first century. They're going to think you're absolutely out of your mind. These charismatics are nuts. That's what they say today. So the first reason is that they don't, Gentiles, unbelievers don't have any reference point. They don't understand scripture, so they're not going to be able to connect the dots, and they're just going to think you're crazy. Second, Gentiles had their own forms of tongues, ecstatic gibberish, which they used to worship their own Greco-Roman deities. If they entered into a Christian worship service and found believers mimicking their religious tongues, they would assume that the church is polytheistic, believing in many, many gods, and they would call it crazy when it tries to say, no, we're monotheistic. We only worship one God. 
How can Christians use a some kind of religious expression to worship false gods, many false gods, how can they be part of that and then and be doing that and have people witness that and then later say, no, we only worship one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No, you don't. You were praising Zeus. You're using the same things to worship our gods that we use. You would have that, and they would think you're crazy for trying to claim that, no, we're worshiping Jesus. Well, I saw that in the temple last week, and they were worshiping Apollos. I don't know. And this is the response of modern-day polytheists, those who believe in multiple gods, like especially of the Buddhists. The Buddhists are polytheists, and they do speak in ecstatic gibberish as worship to their many, many gods. You know, they, they would if they walked into a gathering like that and saw Christians speaking in similar gibberish that they speak in, they would assume that Christians worship more than one god, just like them. Maybe they worship Shiva or Chandra or any of the other gods. And then thirdly, Gentiles in that region, they were usually educated in one to two languages, usually Greek, maybe even Latin. Not all were educated in Latin, but some would. This, the aristocrats had the Latin down. They enter into a room where all the people are speaking in foreign languages, the combination of communication breakdown among all the people because nobody understands what's being said. They're just all ripping off in tongues and everything. That combined with the chaos, because that would be chaos, right? If everyone's talking and chattering and nobody knows what's being said and going on, you've got communication breakdown. You've got what is perceived as chaos. Gentiles come into that. They're just going to say to themselves, these Christians are insane. I know... Greek, I know Latin, I have no idea what these people are saying and why every one of them is saying something different. They would be wondering how that would be helpful, which is what Paul has been wondering since he started writing the letter. How is what you're doing helpful to the body? Even unbelievers can deduce that that's not helpful. And now, think that's Gentiles, non-Jewish. Now think of what happens when a whole church is spouting off in tongues and Jewish unbelievers enter into that church. What happens when they come in and see all these Christians speaking in tongues? Well, it might have reminded them of the Assyrians. <laughs> it might have reminded them of the Babylonians. It might have reminded them of Pentecost if they knew anything about that. Who knows? Who knows what would have happened to them? I think it, may, it probably would have made them a bit fearful to see that because they had bad experiences with stuff like that. Or maybe they might have charged the church with lunacy for trying to misapply scripture and steal some more Jewish history because that's something that Jews have been saying for 2,000 years. You're just borrowing from our history. You're just stealing our history. You're just stealing our religion. And now you're speaking in tongues like the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all this. That's our history. How dare you take that? You people are nuts. The point Paul is making is that corporate tongues are bad for evangelism. Terrible. Terrible. They distract both Gentile and Jewish unbelievers, thus causing them to draw false conclusions and to shut down that anything that might be said in a language they do understand. If people think we are out of our minds, why would they listen to us? They already think that we Christians are crazy for following a Jewish carpenter who died on a cross. 
who believe a sea was split and people walked over it, who believe a guy was swallowed up by a whale and puked out a couple days later. They already think we're nuts. You don't support transsexualism? You're crazy. You don't support the things that we... They already think we're nuts. Do we need to help them think that we're more nuts by having something done like that and performed like that in a public setting? No. What blows my mind is that we have brothers and sisters, allegedly brothers and sisters all around us who can't seem to figure this out and they're doing it every weekend. They already think we're crazy. We don't need to give them fodder through strange fire. That's dumb and that's dangerous. And, and, and what we see today isn't even a real manifestation of the real thing. It's a mockery of God. It's a mockery of the word. People really hammered MacArthur over strange fire, but I think he understands something that a great many people don't understand, and that is the real dangers of this stuff, how it literally destroys evangelism and true worship and everything else. You might think to yourself that, you know, well, charismania and Pentecostalism is just another branch of, of Christianity. No, I've become more and more convinced that it is a dangerous cult. It is. God is not going to be mocked. It's happening right now as I speak. He will not be mocked for long. He has clearly marked out in Scripture how he is to be worshipped. How we are to reach the nations with the gospel, using carnal means, is going to result in divine consequences, no doubt. And this is what Paul is trying to warn the Corinthians about. See, it's not just that you're mistreating your brothers and sisters by misusing and misapplying the gifts. You're destroying evangelism. You're mocking God with fake, false worship. There's a lot at stake here. That's why Paul is so serious about this in chapter 14 and 13 and 12. Verses 24 to 25, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Well, Paul is, he juxtaposes and describes how prophecy, on the other hand, is good for evangelism. Hey, we've got something that's good for it. Tongues, evangelism, tongues, bad. Prophecy, good. If an unbeliever or outsider enters a worship service and, and the believers are prophesying, like in particular there's a guy in the pulpit who's preaching the word carefully and accurately and, and in humility or whatever, I'm not necessarily referring to myself, I'm just saying that if the people are discussing the word and prophesying to each other as they unpack it and sharpen each other or it's being prophesied or proclaimed from the pulpit, if that's happening, that's good. Why? Because it has to do with building people up from the Scripture. What could happen to an unbeliever if they come and sit into here? Well, they might not like my screaming, but if they're actually listening, they might become convicted. They might be called to account. These are words and terms and phrases that Paul uses, convicted. They might be called to account. Why? Because maybe the secrets of his or her heart are being disclosed. You see, prophecy, 
which is the accurate, good expository proclamation of the word. It is designed to expose the secret desires of the heart, the hidden sins, where tongues doesn't do anything like that. We all know this to be true. Have you ever just been sitting there listening to a message and you're just, you feel like you were just cut in half? That God just took a lightsaber and went, and you're like, I'm dying. You're like Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in a house with people with unclean lips. We're all unclean. I'm undone. That's what prophecy is intended to do. So when an unbeliever comes in and everyone's rattling off in tongues, they think we're nuts. If they come in and somebody's preaching the word in the spirit, there's a good chance that they might be convicted as their heart's hidden sins and these things are revealed. This is exactly what happened to me at Big Valley 20 years ago. You know, I've told the story where I was sitting there and I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. All of a sudden I felt like the minister was talking to me. So much so that I looked over at Rachel and said, did you use AOL to email him? I will not like you if you are emailing him and telling him about my life. She's like, I don't even know him. We were new. Everything he said was like a dagger. I, I, could, I could hear him. And I was terrified. Oh, my goodness. He's talking about me. You know what? It wasn't Rick Countryman that was talking about me. It was the Holy Spirit who was convicting me, who was revealing the sin in my life. That's the power of prophecy, that gift. You might be convicted. He might be called to account. The secrets of his heart disclosed. Faith is a gift from the Spirit, and it comes by hearing the Word of God, Ephesians 2.8, Romans 10.17. Since prophecy is the proclamation of the Word of God, and since the Spirit attends the Word, the potential for conversion is there. But where is the potential for conversion when a bunch of tongues are being rattled off? It's not there. When a gathering is full of prophecy, biblical exposition, conversions very likely to happen. If unbelievers visit, they might not be unbelievers for long. But when a gathering is full of tongues without interpretation or the interpretation just isn't scriptural, how is anyone in that setting going to be called to account? How is anything hidden in their lives going to be exposed? How are they going to be convicted? This is what Paul is saying. How will... You got tongues going off? Wow, it might be kind of impressive and seem cool. There's no interpretation. The interpretation is totally lame as it usually is today. How are believers going to be built up in that context? And how are unbelievers going to be convicted? See, yet the gift of prophecy wields the sword of the Spirit, Scripture, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged human sword, piercing to the division of soul and of the Spirit, of our spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12, one of my favorite verses. There's your difference between prophecy and tongues. One will cut a person in half spiritually. The other does nothing but make them think you're crazy. At this point, Paul must have been wondering, I, I just cannot get my mind around how you're obsessed with a, a spiritual gift or a, a sign gift that was a gift, a, a sign of judgment against unbelievers? How, why are you obsessed with that when it, it, when you have prophecy? And it's what builds the church. 
Without it, there's no building because it's the, you're using the word. To me, the Corinthians' obsession with, with tongues it just made zero sense biblically. It was not something they really needed for that congregation. What they needed was more prophecy. Now that we know the true purpose of tongues and that the gift ceased long ago with the apostles, it makes even less sense for any church today to either pursue tongues or to claim to have it. Consequently, churches that actually do this, that claim to have tongues and claim to practice it all the time, churches that do that tend to be very man-centered, very weak, very, very weak in the area of prophecy, the proclamation of the word. Have you ever made the connection? It is there. It is there. Now let's move to our fourth point. I think we all understand that tongues, the purpose was as a sign to unbelievers primarily with a secondary purpose, but that's dropped off. Now we talk about quickly the procedure for tongues, verses 26 to 28. He says in verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, when you come together, you have these things. You offer up these things. Great. He says, let all things be done for building up. There's your baseline right there. Paul tells the Corinthians that when the church is gathered and believers serve one another, whether it be through singing hymns or sharing a lesson or giving a revelation from God or speaking in a tongue or through an interpretation, all such acts of surface, uh, service or expressions of any sort of spiritual gifts, they have to be done for one and one purpose only, and that is for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, this, of course, requires that we keep Scripture at the center of our service. Why? Because Christians are built up by only one thing, the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. In other words, if any acts of service that you do, no matter what expression, whatever you do, great, I'm glad you're doing it. But if it is absent of the Word of God, you're not building anything up. Nothing is being built up. And that's a further indictment against tongues because it didn't really have anything to do with Scripture except an Old Testament sign again of judgment. If we sing songs when we gather, we must sing Scripture. If we give a lesson, maybe in the kids' group or something like that, or like Dave does on, at, uh, at the, uh, the, the thing that we do, what, what the heck is it called? What do we call that? What do we call it when believers come together and maybe study the Word beforehand and then they go to the service? It's not called Bible study. Sunday school, thank you. We had to get some old Baptist in the back to tell us what it is because they're the ones that do it. Sunday school, right? Whether you give a lesson in Sunday school, it's got to be from Scripture. You sing, it's got to be Scripture. You give a lesson, it's got to be Scripture. You give a revelation, it's not going to be new. And if you think it's new, you're already in trouble. You give a revelation from God's Word who's already revealed His truth. It has to come from Scripture. Everything must be from Scripture or there is no potential for building up because this is what builds us up. You believe that? Since tongues and interpretation already ceased, we don't need to be concerned about that because Paul does mention it here. It hadn't ceased yet, and that's why he wrote that. But when it comes to every other gift and act of service that he lists there, besides tongues, they have to be centered upon the Word of God because that's what builds up. The Scripture is replete with theological expressions talking about, biblical expressions talking about how it builds us up. And 2 Tim 3 is one of the best. 
You know, in today's churches, there are all sorts of weekly activities, right, during the week and stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on. Some churches, I mean, they're just mills. It's like a mill for producing activity. They got something for every night of the week. You got Bible studies going on all the time. You got youth ministries going all the time. Now I even hear that there's book clubs, right? What Bible book are we studying? We're not. We're doing Grisham. It's like, what? You got book clubs and Bible studies and youth ministries and mops. You got all this stuff going on all the time. There's no shortage of activity. But what I've noticed is that the materials that are used during those activities, they're not very biblical. They're not very doctrinally sound. Honestly, it's mostly feel-good stuff. As a wedding DJ, I have the privilege of interacting with quite a few Christians. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who are always getting married and everything, and usually it's about 24 hours after they meet. And uh, <laughs> I love her. It's like you've known her for 10 minutes. She drinks the same coffee as me. Okay, go for it. Three years later, you know, counseling. But I, I interact with a lot of Christians, you know, and, and it's a good thing. It's, it's a real blessing. I think it's a privilege. But a lot of times, they're, you know, they're not Christians I know, but they just start describing, you know, their walk with Christ and all that. And maybe they, they describe what they're, you know, I, I like to ask people, like, what, do you, what have you been reading lately? You know, what are you reading in the Bible? Oh, I'm reading here. Or what, what else are you reading? Are you reading any extra biblical stuff, you know? And, and they'll describe what they're reading. And I'll sit there and stand there and say, hey, with a smile, because I've learned as a Christian how to have a professional fake smile, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, while in your mind you're imploding. Oh. I sit there and I say to myself, why is this person reading Stephen Furtick? Why is this person reading Joyce Meyer? Why is this person reading, I say that, and not as a judgment against them, but it just, it, it blows my mind. And usually it's because somebody in their church or maybe even somebody that they really respect, a pastor has given them that resource or turn them onto that resource. Let me tell you something right now. A Bible study that uses Stephen Furtick is not an actual Bible study. You can call it that. Just like the Corinthians were calling static gibberish tongues. It wasn't tongues. A Bible study from Joyce Meyer is not an actual Bible study. It's a Joyce Meyer thing. That kind of material cannot build up the way that Paul is describing here because it's not biblically centered. And if it does have a lot of Bible in it, they're twisting the Bible to say what they want it to say and to support their horrific, terrible theologies. I'm not trying to pick on people here. I'm just telling you. Paul has something in mind here, and it's coming straight from the word good exposition. That's what builds up. The gifts and stuff must be tied to that. Our service must be tied to that. And there are resources out there that aren't worth the ink that they are written with because they don't actually accomplish this. What about the songs? The songs that are sung in churches today are so vacuous of truth, the only thing they build up is people's emotions. Chord progressions. Repetitive choruses. He loves me. He loves me. He loves me. And I'm like, he loves me not. I mean, it's just what they do, and they just build up this frenzy of emotions. It's, it's not truth. They have little to no spiritual impact. The music has little to no spiritual impact because they have little to no biblical truth. The children's lessons that are used today are a far cry from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which, by the way, was written for children. 
American evangelicalism has produced such a dumbed-down polity, it's no mystery as to why American evangelicals are among the most biblically illiterate and theologically shallow Christians in the world today. Our two main exports, like when you think of American evangelicalism or American Christianity, the two main exports aren't the doctrines of grace or something good like that. They're Pentecostalism and charismaticism. Those are our two main exports. <laughs> the church in America needs reformation. Without it, it will not be able to endure the satanic attacks that are going to come through or have been coming through the Fed, through the state, through the, uh, what do they call them, the alphabet army, LGBTQ, whatever it is, and so on. And this is all a side note to what I'm saying, but I'm just talking about the importance of this. This is what builds up. And our service and gifts and all that must be centered on this. Everything that we do must be centered on this. We're not going to make it through things that are coming. We need to make sure that our service here at RHC toward one another, it's building up this body. That's the goal. Now, after describing how tongues and other spiritual gifts are intended to build up the body of Christ in verses 27 to 28, I should say tongues, it was in a sense intended for that, but prophecy really does it. After he describes these sorts of things, and even tongues he points to, he describes the procedure for tongues, how it should be done. Not as a sign, again, not as a sign to unbelievers, but as a spiritual gift. So it did have two components. It was a sign and it was a spiritual gift in a sense. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where he says it in the last two verses, how it should be conducted, which is the exact opposite of what we see today. Verses 27 and 28, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only one, only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each one remain silent in church and speak only to himself and to God. Very quickly, we see four things here. The Corinthians and all apostolic era Christians were to do concerning tongues. First, they were to have no more than two or at most three people speaking in tongues during a worship gathering. Verse 27a, that's how it's to be done. You're not supposed to have a whole church doing it, not then or now. And limiting it could reduce congregational confusion, maybe guard the church against unnecessary accusations by visiting unbelievers and outsiders. Remember, when the whole church is blasting off in that way, they think we're crazy. Second, each tongue speaker had to speak in turn, verse 27b. In other words, they had to take turns and it can only speak when it was their turn to speak. You could never have, you're not supposed to have two, three, four people rattling off in tongues at the same time, only one at a time. Is that what we see today? No. One at a time. You have more than uh, two or three at most, according to Paul, you end up with a crazy congregational chaos. Everybody's blasting off at the same time. J-Mac says, one of the strongest indictments of the modern charismatic movement is the common practice of many persons speaking, praying, and singing at the same time with no one paying attention to what others are doing or saying. It is everyone for himself, just as it was in Corinth, and this is a clear violation of Paul's command to let each one speak in a tongue in turn. So what he's saying is today what you see is a whole bunch of people blasting off in tongues in a congregation. And Paul, that just does not meet Paul's criteria. Thirdly, they had to have someone interpret, 27C, 
Tongues cannot edify apart from interpretation. In fact, MacArthur says it's the gift of interpretation that actually does the edifying, not tongues itself. Tongues can't do anything without interpretation, and that is Paul's point here. If you don't have an interpreter, it means nothing. Fourth, you don't have an interpreter, they had to what? Keep silent in church. If there was no one to interpret, right, verse 28a, no interpreter, here's the bottom line, no interpretation, no interpreter, no tongues. If you have an interpreter, two to three at most in intervals. And the word one here that we see in verse 28a, it's in the emphatic position in the Greek construct, indicating that only a single person was involved. In other words, only one person could interpret, even if three People were speaking in intervals. Only one interpreter, not everyone interpreting. That's what we see today, huh? No. If the interpreter was there, the tongue speaker, uh, if the interpreter wasn't there, the tongue speaker had to remain silent. But if the interpreter was there and present, they could furnish an interpretation. Only they could do it, nobody else. You, you couldn't have somebody supernaturally speak off or even trying to fake it. But you couldn't have somebody speak in a tongue and then somebody say, here's what he said in that language and then have four other people weigh in on it. One interpreter. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is that whether it be tongues or, interpreta uh, tongues or interpretation, both combined, that's the only way they're viable. They have to be performed in an orderly manner or not performed at all. Now, some try to add verse 28b to Paul's list of procedures for tongues. It says, and speak to himself and to God. They even claim that that particular saying right there supports this idea of secret prayer languages. You know, where you go into your prayer closet and shandabanga and you're just talking to God. They say this supports that. It totally does. Well, that was not Paul's intent here. I think he was using biting sarcasm as usual, like he did back in verse 2. When a person speaks in a legitimate tongue, an actual language, and there is no interpretation, he or she is, in a sense, speaking only to God, since God is the only one present who understands what he or she is saying. That's exactly what he said back in verse 2. And that's what he's saying again here. In verse 28b, Paul is saying that if you insist on speaking in tongues, but there is no one there to interpret, keep quiet, wait until you get home, and then speak to yourself and to God, the only one who can understand you. That's not a procedure to be followed. That is pure, unadulterated sarcasm. You want to talk in tongues? Got no one there to help you out with that? Do it to yourself when you get home and do it to the only one who can understand you. That is not instructions. That is sarcasm. It's not a procedure to be followed. It's not a justification for secret prayer languages. It is Pauline sarcasm at its best. Now, there are many things we can take away from the text. Obviously, what I really like for us to walk away with is really, I think, the main point of these verses, of this particular section, and that is that there is a biblical order to our worship services. There's an order to them according to Scripture. The point, I think, really, and what you do see here is a regulative principle in verses 20 to 28, right? And you see that throughout Scripture. God says, worship me, and he tells us how. That's the regulative principle. He instructs us on how to do it. We don't get to make it up. Bottom line here to this text in particular, I think, is that when we gather, things are to be done God's way. 
Our spiritual gifts and service are to be used to build up the body, not our egos and reputations. That's something Paul has been saying. And now he's been saying that when, when these services and gifts are used and performed, they're not done randomly. They're not, done, they're not to be done chaotically. They are to be planned out in a sense. Not that you would take that spontaneity away from the spirit, but that when you plan a worship service, you actually plan the worship service. You have an order for what you're going to do. You don't just show up and wing it. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. You, you execute a worship service and the, the use of your gifts and service and all these things are to be done in an orderly fashion. We don't ever want to create chaos. People are going to think we're crazy. They're going to shut down. And it doesn't honor God. I'm super thankful to be part of a church that gets this. On the other hand, I'm insanely concerned by what I see happening in our community and beyond. There are near countless churches that either avoid chapter 14 here altogether or they just interpret it to their own liking. They show absolutely no concern for Paul's divinely inspired infallible guidelines, whether it be for tongues or anything else. Even if tongues and other sign gifts were still in play for today, I don't think they are, but even if they were, they're not being performed according to Scripture at all. They don't meet the criteria and the procedures here in this text. They fall so short of this, it's not even funny. They are Corinthian, not biblical. Isn't that amazing that a church in the first century was using and abusing these things? It was way out of control, ridiculous. They're written a letter that addresses all of this, and that you have Christians 2,000 years later who are doing the exact same thing as the Corinthians, and they have the instructions. What on earth? And that's why I think it's more of a cult, because it's deliberate what they're doing. People are doing whatever they want, whenever they want. There is no order. There is no edification. And the outside world thinks that Christians are crazy because of it. Now, if more and more pastors would stop shrinking back because of fear or whatever, you know, to stop shrinking back and begin to declare the whole counsel of God, Acts 20, 27, right? Teaching book by book, line by line, word for word. If they would just begin to do that, they and their people would be educated by the scripture. They would be empowered by the scripture to implement a biblical polity, worship services that align with scripture and actually worship God. Because this stuff that we see today, what we see playing out in, this, in our Bible here in this church and what we see today, it's not worship. It's not worship of God. I'm just going to end with a really, really good quote from a guy named Greg Wills. He's a professor of church history at Southern Seminary, and he said this. A sincere desire to honor God in our worship is not enough. Why does he say that? Because that's what everyone thinks. Well, I just really want to do it. I really want to worship God and I want to express my heart to him and tell him I love him. And it's all coming from this motive of, of just a desire to honor God, right? And I don't think the desire is wrong, but that's what's driving everything today. What is a desire? It's a feeling. It's an emotion. So he says, a sincere, even if it's sincere, it's real. A sincere, real desire to honor God in our worship, that's not enough. We must seek and submit to his will. In other words, we have, we have to, if we, want, if we sincerely desire to worship him, we have to worship him the way that he has told us to. 
That's just all there is to it. See, they have a desire, an eager desire, a sincere desire to worship God today, but where is the desire to do it according to His Word? There's the difference.